for now. Um, but it, it's great, again, to be here, and um, as you guys all got the message, or I hope that you got the message, I know there's at least one person who didn't um, get the message, that we are at, officially at one service um, now, so if you come at 9.15 or 9.30, whenever that one started, I've forgotten already, um, there might be someone here, but it won't be for church. We start at 10.30 moving forward, um, but it, it's good that we're all together again, and I, I love seeing the church full. Um, before, when we were doing one service, you guys kind of congregated to one side. The first service was generally over here, and the second service was generally over here, so I was kind of angling as I spoke to you. Um, so it's good that everyone is here on both sides. I, I really love that, um, but I just, I love that we're together as one body. It just feels so good, again, and I said this last week, it feels so good for us to all be together, um, and I hope that we don't forget that, how, how this feeling of togetherness and of unity um, as we hopefully get back to a sense of normalcy, that we don't forget how much it hurt and how much we really kind of hated being apart. Um, so that doesn't have anything to do with my sermon this morning, but I thought I would share it. Um, <laughs> so this week, I wasn't originally planned to preach. Uh, Pastor Paul was supposed to be back, but something came up, and so last Friday or Saturday, I don't remember which one, he asked me um, if I could preach, and I said, well, sure. And so as I was finishing my uh, sermon for Easter, I began to ask myself, what, what should I preach on next week? What should be the follow-up to the Easter message? Um, and it was almost as if God kind of smacked me in the back of the head and said, preach this. Um, I had just read a chapter from the book uh, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. If you haven't read that, I highly recommend that book. It's a fantastic book. Um, but I had just read this chapter about this verse, um, verse 25, actually. Um, but, but it was so, it was like God was saying, yeah, this is it. Don't do anything else. Um, and so I, I felt like as I was writing this message this week, it was part two of our Easter message. Um, so last, last week we celebrated how Christ rose from the dead, how he broke the power of sin and death. Um, it, we saw how it was God's plan, but wicked men carried it out, um, and that did not absolve them of their responsibility from their action just because God was the one who planned it from the beginning of the world. But we also saw that death has no power over Christ, nor power over anyone who is his. And we ended last week in hope, knowing that because Jesus lives, we can face anything that comes our way. Because we are justified in and through Christ, we have no fear of death, we have no fear of persecution, we have no fear of anything because Christ is risen. And so that brings us to this morning. Last week was all about what Christ did for us in the past. What did Christ do before for us? Today, we're going to talk about what is Christ doing now. Because Christ is alive now, what is he doing? Is he just sitting back on the couch, resting his feet, celebrating what he's done? No. Christ is not passive today. He is active. And so today, we're going to talk about the often ignored but hugely important job of Jesus Christ, his intercession on our behalf. So if you haven't turned there already, turn with me to your Bibles, to Hebrews chapter 7. Um, and if, if you listen, some, one of the things I love about hymns 
And I know that some people don't love hymns. I, I love hymns because they tell a story from the beginning to the end. And so if you listened to the songs that we sang this morning, especially Arise, My Soul, Arise, it tells the whole story. If, if you listen to that, you know where my sermon's going. You, you probably don't need to say, but I would encourage you to stay. Um, <laughs> but that song, that song is my sermon this morning. So follow along as we read in Hebrews 7, starting in verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Let's pray before we dive in this morning. Father God, we we come before you just so thankful that we're able to gather together to worship you, to to be together as a family, to encourage one another, to lift one another up, to bear one another's burdens, to celebrate with one another. Lord, I pray that you'll be with us as we dive into your word this morning, that you will speak through me and that you will open our hearts to hear what you would have us hear. We ask all these things in your son Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we, we're picking up in the middle of an ex- this isn't on. We're picking up in the middle of an extended argument that the Hebrew or the author of Hebrews is making since chapter four of this book, and that is that Jesus is a great high priest. He is our great high priest. Um, so th- that's really the theme of Hebrews: is Jesus is better. So the author opens up the letter, arguing that Jesus is better than the angels. And then he he moves on to Jesus is better than Moses. And then he goes on to Jesus is better than Aaron and the Levitical priests. So that's where he gets in chapter 4. So Jesus is our great high priest. He is from the order of Melchizedek, which is a greater order than the priests of Levi's. Now, we're going to resist the temptation to go down the particular rabbit trail that is what is a priest in the order of Melchizedek because I want us to get out of here this afternoon. Um, But the theme is Jesus is better. His priesthood is better than the priesthood of Aaron and his descendants. Jesus is a better high priest. We need to look no further than verse 21 of this same chapter. So back up a couple of verses. He says, But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn, and you will not change my mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, this oath is from Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is one of the beautiful psalms of David, where he describes the Messiah. He he proclaims to God, or what God has revealed to him about the Messiah. And in this particular psalm, he is proclaiming that in addition to being a mighty ruler, the Messiah is going to be a high priest forever. And because he is going to be a priest, he's going to be the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on these previous texts, but it's important for us to understand this word, this, the word guarantor, or sometimes... If, depending on your Bible, it might be surety, which is how that song, or the song, Arise, My Soul, Arrives, describes it, my surety. And that is 
this right now is the only time that that word is used in the entire New Testament. But it is used frequently in ancient documents, ancient legal documents. And so what this person would do, what this surety would do, is he would stand and pledge himself, saying that I'm going to make, this, make sure this happens. And so an example for us to see is Genesis 43. So in Genesis 43, to just remind you of the context briefly, Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers, and then through a series of events, he becomes the second in command of all of Egypt. And when this is taking place, the entire world is in in the middle of a seven-year famine. But Egypt has food. And so people from all over the world are going to Egypt to get food. And so Jacob... Joseph's father, sends 10 of his 11 remaining sons to Egypt to get food for their family. Benjamin is the only one who stays at home with Jacob. And so when they get there, Joseph sees them, and he goes and talks to them and, you know, has a conversation, and then he accuses them of being spies. And he takes Simeon, the the oldest brother, he takes him and arrests him and throws him in prison. And he says, you're not getting Simeon back until you come back with your youngest brother, Benjamin. But Benjamin is his father's favorite son, now that Joseph is gone. He thinks Joseph's dead. So when the brothers come back, Jacob's like, no, you're not taking Benjamin to Egypt. You're just going to abandon Simeon there. Okay? And eventually it gets to the point where if they don't go back to Egypt, they're all going to starve. They don't have food. And so Judah steps up and tells his father, I will guarantee his safety. Listen to what it says in Genesis 43, verse 9. He says, I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all of my life. Judah is acting as surety. Okay? He is saying... You put it all on me. I will be the one responsible all the days of my life if something happens to Benjamin. I will guarantee this will take place. I will sacrifice my life. I will will pledge security. I will do everything in my power to make sure that I bring Benjamin back to you. That's what Judah is saying. So now take this idea and apply it to what the author of Hebrews is telling us. Jesus is the surety of the new and better covenant. Because Jesus is the great high priest forever, he is our surety. But think about this. God doesn't need surety. All right? He he never has and will never need surety on his behalf. When God says something, when God makes a promise, he doesn't need someone else to come and say, I will make sure that this takes place. We, we never have to look at, and say, at a promise of God and say, I don't know if God can really deliver on his end of this promise. We, on the other hand, fail frequently. Every day we fall short of what God expects of his people. Christ isn't God's surety. He is our surety. 
He is standing before us saying, they can't keep the covenant, but I can and I did. And the priesthood of Christ is forever. He doesn't just do that once. He didn't just do that on the cross. He does it every day for us. And so I'm jumping to the end of my sermon before we even get to our text. Um, but that's important for us to understand as we go through the rest of this text. So let, let's keep going. Many of those priests. So those priests that the author of Hebrews is referring to are Aaron and his sons and every priest from the tribe of Levi that has ever lived in Israel's history. Now some of these priests were good, like Aaron and Eleazar his son and Phinehas his son. But some were terrible, like the sons of Eli, who God killed because they were so wicked. The priesthood was important. And so to understand what the author of Hebrews is saying to us here, we need to understood, or understand the Levitical priesthood. Among other things, the, the main job of the priests was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. They would offer daily sacrifices. And the high priest had to offer sacrifices for himself and for the people of Israel. And we read that, that those are in the verses after where we get to today in Hebrews 26 and on, or 7:26 and on. But this priesthood, had to, they offered sacrifices every single day. That's just what they did because these sacrifices did not ex- or affect salvation once and for all. In fact, they didn't affect salvation at all. The blood of sheep and goats did not forgive a single sin. But it pointed us to the sacrifice that would. And that was Jesus. The sacrifices of the Levitical priesthood were limited. But in addition to failing to forgive sins, the Levitical priesthood was temporary. Aaron's high priesthood did not extend beyond his death. Okay? So there, there came a point in time when Aaron was no longer going to be the high priest. And Moses and, Aaron, and Aaron's son Eleazar went up the mountain. And Moses took the garments off of Aaron and put them on Eleazar. And then Aaron died on that mountain. And Moses and Eleazar came down and Eleazar was the new high priest. And then there came a time when Eleazar was going to die. And he died. And his son Phineas became the new high priest. And this happened over and over and over again. And so we have a new high priest coming in all the time. The Jewish uh, historian Josephus reckoned that there were 83 high priests in Israel's history from Aaron to the destruction of the second temple in AD 70. The Talmud lists even more than that. The Talmud shows that there were 18 high priests during the first temple and over 300 during the second temple. But all this does is show us that the priesthood of the Levites was not permanent. It was not sufficient for salvation. It did not grant us a great and perfect high priest. Death prevented them from reigning forever. And it wasn't a bad system. It just wasn't as good as what Jesus gives to us. Because Jesus lives forever, he is the great high priest. He is that perfect high priest that is going to live forever. We never need another one. 
we are told that Jesus holds a permanent priesthood. Now, this means two different, albeit related, things. It can mean unchangeable or permanent, as it is translated by the NIV here. But it can also mean non-transferable. Okay, so he, he, it's unchangeable. He holds it forever. But it also means that no one will ever, he, he will never transfer his role to anyone else. In the Levitical priesthood, you had some really good priests and some really bad priests. You had some that were really good at their jobs and some that were not good at their jobs at all. And we, we know what that's like. We, we know what it's like to undergo transition. If, if we're, even if we just talked about our church three years ago, we went through a period of transition when we had a pastor retire and a new pastor come. And now we're going through transition again, looking for a new pastor. But it doesn't have to be a church to understand that. When you get a new job or a new boss at work, there's transition. When you go, when you, kids who get a new teacher know what this is like. People have different strengths. If you go to a new doctor, there's some things that a doctor will do well, and there's some things a doctor won't do well. There, there, there can be unevenness of care in transitions. What some person does really well, another person might not do so well. And what some person does really, really well, this person might do really poorly. But we don't have to worry about that with our great high priest. Because we have the best high priest we could ever ask for in Jesus. And he lives forever. There will never be another one. There is only perfect intercession from, or to the Father on our behalf. We never have to transition and we never need to. We never need to ask for a new high priest. Because Jesus is able to save us completely. Utterly, to the utmost. Every sin, forever and ever. There, there is no sin too wicked that the blood of Christ is not sufficient to wash away. Christ took upon himself the sins of the whole world. He took the wrath of God for sin for all time. The sheep of blood or the blood of sheep and goats did not forgive sins. It was only a symbol of what was needed. And it points us to the precious blood of Christ. The perfect sacrificial lamb offered up freely on our behalf. John 10, one of the truly great, as if there's some not great passages of scripture. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite passages of scripture uh, is John 10, and where he lays out this metaphor of the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. But starting in verse 17, Jesus says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from, my fa- or from the father. Wicked men, sinners, did not have Jesus under their authority when they arrested him, when they beat him, when they mocked him, and when they killed him. Jesus still held all the authority in the room. 
He could have put a stop to it at any moment he chose. But he willingly, of his own authority, granted to him by the Father, laid down his life for his sheep, for his people. And in doing so, he saved to the utmost, completely, once and for all. And it's so important for us to see and understand the sufficiency of the salvation we have in Christ. He didn't save us most of the way, and then we have to finish the last little bit. He didn't say, all right, I'm going to do all this, but you still have to do a few things to get there. That's not how the blood of Christ works. So I, I had a really busy week this week. Um, as many of you know, I actually started a new job. And so I only have two days where I'm here at the church in my office um, each week. And so I try to get all of my sermon prep and everything done during those two days, which is a ridiculous plan, but um, that's what I hope for. Uh, anyway, it didn't happen this week. So Friday, after I had to go pick up um, Brad and Zeke from school, I brought them back here. And if you haven't met my son, you, you, all you have to do is say hi to him, and he'll tell you something about Mario. He's obsessed with Mario. He, he, he loves it. And so I needed to be able to work while I was here. So when, on my way back here, we stopped at my house, and we got our Nintendo Switch. And so I brought the Nintendo Switch here for Brad to play so that I could focus. Because you put that in front of him, he's good for hours. Um, anyway, he, he loves it. And Zeke also loves it, but Zeke is only three, and he has no idea what he's doing. But sometimes we give Zeke a controller that's not on, and he, he sits there and he presses button and acts like he's playing. He thinks that he's controlling a character, but he's not. He has no idea what's going on. Anyways... Brad, Brad there, there comes points in the games where Brad needs help. And so Brad comes and he gets me and he, he needs me to help him get through. And so I do most of the work and he is there doing things, but I'm doing most of the work. So anyway, back to Friday afternoon. Brad comes running in as I'm writing the sermon and he says, Dad, me and Zeke use the power of teamwork to beat this level. And so naturally, I took this as God saying, use this as an illustration in your sermon. Um, so, so Brad sometimes gets to these points, as I just said, where it's really hard for him to do. And so I help him, and I'm the one who's doing most of the work. I'm the one who's beating the level, but he is actually playing, and he's doing some things to help. That's not what salvation is like. Salvation is more like when we give Zeke a controller that's not on and it's not controlling anything and I'm doing all the work. Jesus did all the work. All we brought was the sin that needed to be forgiven. His blood paid for all of it. We don't have to help Jesus. We don't need to improve on Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus did it all. He doesn't even need the smallest contribution from us. It is the blood of Christ, period, end of story. It is finished. And once again, this perfect sacrifice 
has two aspects simultaneously. The blood of Christ covered all the sins. Every sin that you've ever committed is covered under the blood of Christ. All of them. But it's also for all time. It's all of your sins forever. Christ's salvation is an eternal salvation. It lasts forever because He will live forever. And this is offered to all who draw near to God. For all who come to God. Those who approach the throne of grace. For we know that not everyone will be saved. There are those who are going to reject the gospel just as though there are those who rejected Christ. Those who fail to accept Him as their Lord and Savior. Those who reject our great high priest. They will be cast into the lake of fire when He returns as the conquering King. But all who draw near to God will be saved. All who approach His throne will be saved to the uttermost. Most will not come, but all who come will be welcome. In another just amazing passage from John, Jesus says this, All those that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. All who come to Jesus will be welcomed. He will drive no one away who comes to Him. On the contrary, Jesus tells us that the Father will draw them to Him. Now, wherever you stand in the Calvinism-Arminian debate, there's no denying, based on this verse, that God draws people to Christ. All, and all who come to Christ, everyone who comes, will be welcomed. He's not going to drive anyone out. If you come to Christ sincerely, you are welcomed into the family. Now, as I considered this portion of the text, I was reminded of the story of Esther. And there's, there's a moment in the story of Esther where she is preparing to go before the king. There's a plot to kill all of the Jews in the Persian Empire. And it, uh, Esther, who is a Jew, is the queen. And so her cousin Mordecai goes to her and says, this is what you're there for. You go to the king and plead our behalf. You go intercede on our behalf. But it was not legal for anyone to go before the king unless they are summoned. Anyone who just walked into the throne room before the king could be killed just for going there without being called. Okay? So Esther is so worried about appearing before the king that she and all of her servants fast for three days before she walks in there. And I just imagine how worried Esther is walking to the throne room, trembling, wondering if she is walking to her death. This is the exact wrong picture for those who approach the throne of God. All who come to the throne of God through Jesus are welcomed. There is no need for trembling. We can come boldly and confidently through Jesus Christ, our great and glorious high priest. 
the Father will welcome all who come in the Son. For we are Christ's brothers and sisters. We are joint heirs of the promise of Christ. He is our elder brother. The wounds on his hands and feet and in his side are all the proof we need to come before the throne of God with confidence. How encouraging is that? To know that we don't have to tremble to go before the God of the universe. Is there any better news than knowing that we are saved completely by Christ and we can be reconciled to God through Him? That we can come to the Creator of all things without fear because of Christ. Hallelujah. We can do this because He lives to intercede for them. And now that we're, what, about 30 minutes into the sermon, we come to the main point. The, the, the title of the sermon is right here. Because he lives to intercede for them. The intercession of Jesus shows us so many things. First, it shows us just what he's doing. It shows that he is interceding on the behalf of the forgiveness of sin. Because we still sin. We still fall short. And we still need forgiveness. 1 John 1, nine says, If we are, confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We still pray for the forgiveness of sins, and Christ is there interceding on our behalf to the Father. And second, He intercedes on our behalf on account of our weakness. We need help. We need aid. We need strength. Now, there are some commentators who argue on which of these things is it? Is Christ interceding on behalf of our sins, or is Christ interceding on behalf of our weakness? But there, to me, there's no biblical or logical reason why it's not both of those things. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. And I think that the author of Hebrews has already shed light onto this passage earlier in his epistle. And so I want to highlight two passages that help us see this. The first one is Hebrews 2, Verses 17 and 18. The apostle writes, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the, people of, or for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So in that passage, you see both the forgiveness of sins and temptation and being able to empathize with us when we are tempted. He understands the suffering that comes when we undergo temptation. He was fully human in every way, just like us. And he became just like us so that he can be a merciful and faithful high priest, someone who can sympathize with us because he knows what it's like. And then a few chapters later, it's even more clear in Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 15. For we do not have a, great, or have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I absolutely love this. 
it, it essentially sums up my entire sermon. We can come to God because of who Christ is and what he has done. It's, it is clear in the mind of the apostle of this incredible epistle that the intercession of Christ is not limited to the forgiveness of sins. That's clearly a part of it, but that's not all it is. Christ intercedes on behalf of his people. He is constantly, consistently, and passionately interceding on our behalf. When we sin, he reminds the Father that his blood paid the punishment for our sins. But he also pleads for us to receive mercy and to find grace in our time of need. He asks the Father to give us the strength we need to get through the trials and temptations we face. We aren't left alone to fight through these things. We have an advocate pleading on our behalf. He lives to intercede for us. Now there are two errors that are made when thinking about this. When, when, when looking at the doctrine of intercession, there's two temptations that we might make, or be tempted. There are two things we might be tempted to conclude that are wrong. The first one we may think is that Jesus is an insufficient interceder and turn to somebody else, turn to other options, whether it's deceased relatives, whether it's saints, Old Testament or New Testament saints. We, we need no other interceder. Christ is sufficient to intercede on our behalf. And the second error is that we can get in our mind this picture that Jesus loves us, but the Father doesn't. The Father is just this mean figure who wants to pour out wrath on us. But Jesus is there constantly whispering in his ear, talking him out of it. Both of these things are wrong. So I just want to highlight just a couple of things on each of them. First, there's no need for a mediator other than Christ. There's no lack of efficacy on the prayers of Jesus. We don't need anything else. Over and over and over again, the Bible tells us that we can come to God in Christ and through Christ. It's not through the Old Testament saints. It's not through Moses. It's not through Mary. It's not through Peter or Paul. It is only through Jesus, the perfect Son of God, that we approach the throne of God. That's all we need. There's no deficiency in His intercession. He knows perfectly what we need. He can empathize with us. And He knows the perfect will of God. No one else makes up this Perfect combination of wisdom and power and compassion. There is no better intercession. There is no lack on part of our great high priest. And we need no other. And now on to the second error, which is likely the more common error in this audience. The idea that Christ is interceding on our behalf, but this idea that 
the father is this stern schoolmaster who only wants to punish us. But the loving son convinces, us, convinces him not to. This is so far from the truth that it is difficult to get further. Pastor Paul frequently references this statement from John Owen when he talks about how the greatest sorrow or burden, the greatest unkindness that we can lay on the Father is to doubt His love for us. The Son is the expression of the Father's love for us. We don't need a mediator to convince God to love us. He does love us, and He wants to give us all that Christ asks for. It's a beautiful harmony that Christ is there praying for us, our deepest need, which is what the Father already wants to give to us. If the Father didn't love us, we wouldn't have the Son. He wouldn't have come and endured what He endured. Jesus did everything according to what His Father commanded Him. Now, one commentator commentator put this so perfectly, I'm going to read it so I don't mess it up, all right? St. Chrysostom, the great 4th century preacher, provides a helpful analogy. A young boy whose father was away on a trip wanted to present his father with something that would please him. His mother sent him to the garden to gather a bouquet of flowers. The little boy gathered a sorry bouquet of weeds as well as flowers. But when his father returned home, he was presented with a beautifully arranged bouquet, for the mother had intervened, removing all the weeds. The prayers of the church, prevailing, acceptable, and fruitful as they are, are not a thing of beauty as they leave the lips of saints. As they start their way heavenward, they are a mixed bag of weeds with a few stray flowers. When they arrive, however, thanks to the intercession of Christ, they are nothing but beautiful flowers. What a blessed, comforting thoughts are these are as, as we, amidst our frailties, pray. There is a beautiful aroma from Jesus' perfect prayers offered confidently as he sits at the right hand of God. Every prayer hits the mark and graces our lives. The reason he can save us completely is that truly he always lives to intercede for us. Though we are finite, he is infinite. Though we are temporal, he is eternal. He prays with the ease of omniscience and omnipotence, perfected through his own human suffering. He is praying for us right now. To paraphrase one of my favorite Calvin quotes, if that does not stir up something within our hearts, they must be made of stone. He is praying for us right now. Our frail, though well-intentioned prayers are nothing but weeds. But Christ turns those weeds into beautiful bouquets of flowers to present to the Father on our behalf. He prays for us better than we could ever dream of praying for ourselves. He loves us more deeply than we can express He has the power to give us what we need. So let's close with the correct application of this doctrine. Christ's heart.
for those who are his. Christ is a living, visible reminder to God, not that God needs one, that our sins are paid. When the Father sees Christ, he sees payment for our sins. He sees the demonstration of his love for us. He sees the plan of salvation is secure. It is paid for. It is finished. And he sees the lengths he was willing to go in order to save us. He would not purchase us with so great a price only to abandon us to our weakness and frailty. The intercession of Christ is a demonstration of how deeply loved and cared for we are. We are always welcomed before God through Christ. When we understand Christ's intercession, we understand his heart toward us. When we are feeling down, when we feel the guilt and shame of our weakness and sin, when we get stuck in this pattern of constantly falling short of what we know we should do, when we are sinning over and over and over again and we can't seem to break the pattern and we see all these things we know we should be doing and we just let them go by. We can feel down. All of us know what it's like to be in this cycle where we just can't seem to break free. Weighed down by embarrassment and shame and guilt over what we have done. To wonder why God would ever forgive a sinner like me. I use this term jokingly, usually when I'm talking about my kids. But there are times when it hits hard to the depths of my soul that I am a dirty, rotten sinner. There is nothing good in me, nothing redeemable, nothing of any value to God whatsoever. Times that I wonder why would God forgive me? Intellectually, I know that the blood of Christ is sufficient to pay for all of my sins. But in my soul, why would he want to? It is this doctrine that shines through the darkness. It is the knowledge that even at my worst, Christ is still interceding for me. He is still there at the right hand of the Father praying for me to find mercy and grace in the time of trouble. He is praying to the Father that He will grant me strength to fight through sin. To break the pattern and to enjoy fellowship with our great God again. To draw close to Him once more. And that is an encouraging thought. That our big brother, Jesus, is standing there cheering us on. Shouting encouragement along the way. Pleading for us to get exactly what we need. 
constantly, week after week, day after day, hour after hour, moment after moment. How wonderful is it to have a Savior such as He? Let's pray. Father God, we, we come before You and we are just so grateful for Christ. That He loves us so much. That You love us so much. That You are constantly listening to the intercession. That He is constantly pleading to You on our behalf, Lord. And I just pray that You will be with us. That we will remember that. That we will rejoice in the fact that You love us so much. That Your Son came to die to pay for our sins. And that He is constantly pleading on our behalf. Lord, I pray that we will be encouraged when we are down, that we will confidently, no matter how we're feeling, no matter how much guilt and shame we feel over our sins, that we will come to you with, with confidence, knowing that we have a great high priest who paid for our sins and is pleading for us, Lord. That we know that we can find forgiveness and strength in you and you alone. We ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.